Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of The Francis Farmer Show, a brand new podcast unlike anything you have ever heard before. My name is Mike. I've never done a podcast before in my life. And on the other end of the speaker here is my good, good friend, Sean Gilman. Say hello, Sean. Hello. <laughs> uh, welcome to this first show. You're on the ground floor. Like I said, this has never happened before. There was never a show with a actor's name in it that talked about movies old and new and picked essentials and stuff like that um, and then did rep stuff. Uh, never happened. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. This exactly. This introduction makes no sense. I'm just I'm just I, <laughs> I'm spinning it out of thin air um, on this show. We are going to talk about So this show cards on the table it's the george sanders show new format new style new music new thoughts um we're well, we're, we're trying oh, well <laughs> old, old, old thoughts uh basically the same format yeah it's but pretty new, much the same show new, new music um but but we are trying to if, if you didn't hear the announcement episode the the final uh, tidbit from the George Sanders show and you're just tuning into this what we're doing here is we're trying to just roll this all into what we're doing uh, with the Seattle screen scene website just making it all kind of a complete package we're gonna focus a little bit more on Seattle area screenings and and just tying it in with the area that we both hail from and uh, but it's not gonna. We're we're, tr we're not gonna make this provincial. We're not gonna try and you know scare people away that live across you know the world. That's you know we we don't want to do that, and I hope we won't. But um, it's basically the same format. We're gonna talk about stuff, movies mostly. Um, although baseball season's coming up soon, Sean. Yeah, well, that's where we get really provincial <laughs> because nobody cares about that. Um, but yeah, for the time being, what we're going to do on this inaugural episode, we're going to talk about two films, uh, The Big Sleep from Howard Hawks, uh, who we've talked about on the old show uh, numerous times. And then our first uh, kind of real extensive look into the work of David Lynch uh, with Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which, of course, is set in the Pacific Northwest, which ties it all in with Seattle like I just said we're trying to do. Um, we're jettisoning, jettisoning some things. Uh, person of the Week is gone, thank God. <laughs> but we're keeping essentials. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, in the middle part of the show, um, you know, stuff that's coming to Seattle, stuff we're excited about. Um, and this episode, we're also going to kind of just take a look back at the recent uh, Oscar telecast uh, from a week ago. So we got a whole bunch of stuff on the plate. So I think we should start with a clip here from Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep. Can I help you, sir? Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. You mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly, 
more. Sleep came out in 1946, and that is the year that we are kind of covering in depth this year. When it gets to be the end of the year, we're going to do our, uh, you know, our top five movies of 1946 or top ten, and we're going to hand out like a bunch of fake awards and stuff like that. And The Big Sleep, kind of going into this year, I think is one of the favorites to win the uh, the Francis Farmer Best Picture Prize from 1946. I think it's it's a movie that. The Frannies, as we call them. The Frannies. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a movie that, that uh, both you and I have seen before. Uh, I'm not sure how many times you've seen it. I've seen it at least a dozen times. It's, it's one of my favorite movies. It's one of the best films noir ever. Yeah, I think I've seen it. I've seen it at least half a dozen times. Yeah. So it's yeah. it. Uh, it of course stars uh, Humphrey Bogart as uh, as private detective Philip Marlowe. It's based on a Raymond Chandler novel. I think it's the first Marlowe yep. uh, novel. Well, uh, yes. And it was made uh, in the wake of To Have and Have Not, which Hawks had made in nineteen forty forty four. Starring Bogart and introducing Lauren Bacall. And Bogart and Bacall had such tremendous on-screen chemistry that they like immediately went to work on another film, which was *The Big Sleep*. And after uh, people got a wind of got wind of how awesome uh, they were together in the first film, they actually went back and reshot a few scenes in *The Big Sleep* to make them sexier. Uh, and so it's it's one of the classic Bogart Bacall films. It's probably the best of the it, four it, films they made together. It's the best. Yeah. I really like to have and have not too, but, but this one's pretty great. Uh, so the, the plot is famously convoluted and, and basically unsolvable as it is on screen. And, and part of that is because Hawks and, and his writers, which are like as illustrious, a crew of screenwriters as you can have <laughs> on a film. It's a, uh, uh, Lee Brackett, uh, Jules Firthman, and William Faulkner. <laughs> That's right. All together adapting Raymond Chandler with Howard Hawks. Like it, it just, it simply does not get better than that. But like none of them could figure out the plot of the book. And there's actually like, there's a famous story about uh, one of the murder victims in the book that uh, the screenwriters couldn't figure out who uh, had killed the, the chauffeur. And they called Raymond Chandler and he said, I don't know. Beats me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't know if I can really try to summarize the plot. I don't know that there would be any point to it because the thing about the film is that it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's, it's a whodunit where nobody cares whodunit. It's, it's just about the, the character, the Philip Marlowe figure 
and the dialogue and the relation between the actors and and Howard Hawks and his images. Uh, it's uh, I don't know. Uh, I I put a little uh, a tiny blurb on on Letterboxd about this, and and one of the the commentators, a guy named Carl Sandel, wrote something I think is is very clever. He said that it's. Uh, it really is the perfect balance that makes just enough sense on some level to convince you between viewings that you just forgot how the plot tied together. And that's kind of what it is. Like, it's, it almost makes sense, but it never really does. And you don't yeah. care. And yeah. I, there, there are a few movies like that. Yeah, this is a movie where you can... Uh, there, th- what's so great about this movie is that you can you can appreciate a different element of it all the way through uh, for one screening and then find another element about it that you absolutely adore this the next time through um, and the and the previous thing that got, gave you pleasure falls by the wayside like the last time I saw this I saw this on the uh, big screen like a year and a half ago or something um, and that showing of it, this was just the funniest movie I've ever seen. I mean, I was, and it is, it's hilarious. This and intentionally. So like, I mean, the, the dialogue is so witty and just totally over the top and ridiculous. Um, and that was so enjoyable. And then this time when I watched it without any conscious decision on my part, I got more wrapped up into like just how seedy, like everything, everybody and everything in this movie is. And, and it's, and it's also this, like you said, it's a noir, it's grimy. It's, it, you know, it's got this, you know, it's showing this underbelly that is, you know, there's pornography and there's drugs and there's, you know, murder and extortion. And I mean, all these horrible things that are happening and it's, and it kind of is the perfect encapsulation of all of that horrible stuff. Um, and and so yeah, this movie is is ever shifting, like in my mind, uh, what it represents, and it just it manages to capture absolutely so much stuff within its two hour running time uh, that it's it's endlessly rewatchable. It really is. It's it's what it's it's probably if 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 I was to pick a movie that's probably the most the most rewatchable film, this could easily be the con- uh, contender for that. Yeah, it's definitely up there. Like, and and I. I picked up on things this time that I had never noticed before. Like there's there's a there's a shot when uh, when Bogart is sitting at a lunch counter and he's like trying to figure out what to do next. And at the moment he decides what he's going to do. In the background, a waitress turns on a light right above his head. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it's like literally a light bulb going off as he has an idea of what to do. And it's I I I don't think I'd ever noticed that before. Yeah, uh, I I really kind of keyed into uh, the in the opening scene, which I think is like the the perfect private detective opening scene, where where Bogart arrives at this mansion and meets this general, and and they sit in this greenhouse, which is, you know, it, it it's all exposition scene. Like the general is is explaining all of uh, all of the plot to Marlowe as he's giving him the the case that he wants him to solve. But but uh, they set it in this in this greenhouse where the old man needs heat to survive. So so Bogart's there and he's just sweating and he gets so progressively sweatier yeah. as as it goes on and it's so seamless the way he he starts out normal and then by the end of the scene is just drenched. 
and I'm like trying to figure out how they made him so sweaty when the general doesn't sweat at all. And like clearly they're like, you know, wetting him down between between shots. But the way it's cut, you never notice a cut because that's like Howard Hawks's whole aesthetic is to make the editing invisible. Seamless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like it's like it's magic that that the old man is not getting sweaty, but 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 uh, Bogart is. Yeah, it's such an oppressive, uh, you know, scenario of him being in that room, and he, you know, he's got to take his jacket off, and I mean, you just, it, you feel it. It's like, it's like when you watch Do the Right Thing, and that heat just kind of yeah. comes off the screen at you, and you're just like, get, ooh, you're getting all uncomfortable, and 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 it continues when he leaves that room. He comes out, and he and he gets a a a breath of like fresh air when he walks back into the hallway, and it. And you feel it too. You just feel like, oh my god, I'm finally out of that room. Yeah, he, like, he like, goes up to to Lauren Bacall's room and opens a window, and you can like feel the breeze on your skin as he's cooling yeah. down. Yeah, it's re- it's really remarkable. Yeah, I I really I really also picked up on on what you said that progression in the film from from the first half is very jokey and very fun, and there's like there's like Marlowe every time he. Uh, goes anywhere he sees a gorgeous woman who is instantly crazy about him yeah it's like it's like a porno without the sex like it's like wherever he goes like every beautiful woman is just like super into him and it's it's so funny it's so great but 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 then in in the last 20 minutes or so it gets really dark and marlo is really shaken and it's all the more disturbing because he's been so perfect through the first half of the film he's been so unflappable so so confident and and always a step ahead and smarter than everyone else like the most attractive person in any room he's in and by the end he's like he's shaking he can like barely manage to to get like his desperate scheme to pay off. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, that, that progression, that, that move is really, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's terrifying, especially in relation to the other film we, <laughs> we watched this week, but it's really effective. And, and I think a lot of it is, is just in Bogart's performance, just the way his body language changes from the first to the second half of the film. Yeah. He gets increasingly desperate. Like there's, um, he has that great um, scene in the car with um, uh, I can't remember. There's so many names in this movie. It's hard for that's another reason it's hard to kind of keep a hold of the plot. Is there's so many characters names that are thrown out like Sean Regan and you know uh, all all these people. Uh, but the the name of the the woman that works for the front uh, of the pornography shop. Uh, Agnes. What's, uh, Agnes. That's right. He has that scene with Agnes. Um, in her car after Elijah Cook Jr.'s dead, and he he just throws that back in her face. He's like, "You never cared about him, you know." Um, and and he, and he and in that scene, he is just so desperate and just so fed up with you know all these people and their shenanigans. Um, and it's a total, you know, it's totally attributed to to Bogart's performance in the, in that scene. Like, you know, you can have the best dialogue in the world, but he does a really good job of of uh, inhabiting that kind of character. Yeah, and and the fascinating contrast with that is that Lauren Bacall's demeanor never changes. She's, yeah, she's always the same woman, which is is really interesting to me. Like, I I'm wondering if that is is like a limitation in her performance or if it's telling us something essential about her character. 
Well, that and and this is what I got this time with the movie too is that the relationship between the two of them is really weird because what well one going back to the the Marlo you know in the, in the first half of the movie uh, being this flirtatious dude that you know all the all the ladies love all the ladies love cool B you know um, he you know and then transitions to this kind of it's almost like the the Marlo being domesticated by the end where no longer women aren't throwing themselves at him because now he's in this, you know, this kind of one, one person relationship with uh, Lauren Bacall. But it's so funny because she's kind of not a good person. <laughs> like, like, you know, he, 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 he has this other monologue where he's talking about, he's talking to like a, his cop friend and he's like, one of them's a good girl and the other one's a bad girl. Um, but in fact, no, Lauren Bacall is kind of bad in this movie too, and and she's kind of remorseless uh, until the very end when she decides to save his life. Um, but you know, he he explains it away as that you know she's under the thumb of this gambling guy or whatever. But she seems a little too unflappable to um, you know have done this all against her own will, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and it's and and part of it is is we don't really get an explanation for the crime in the center of the movie for for what Eddie Mars, who is the 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 ultimate villain, what what control what, what is it that he has that has control over Lauren Bacall? And in the in the novel, it's it's clear you've read the novel as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and I I read it like twenty years ago, uh, but. Uh, in that, it's it's very obvious that the little sister had killed Sean Regan, in like a a jealous rage because she wanted him, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been a decade for me too. I pl- I actually wanted to kind of read read up on it again uh, before recording the show, or I actually thought about reading it again because I I think I read all the Chandlers in uh, two thousand seven, so it's almost been a decade. But uh, um, yeah, there's a lot that changes between this and the book. The, I mean, I think at the end of the book the younger uh woman the the sister um she ends up in like a shootout at the end i think in the book um i thought she got like institutionalized as a nymphomaniac or something well see we this is us speculating about books we've read you know decades ago so but but um but yeah it's anyway like the the crime is clearer in the book like it 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 makes sense yeah i mean raymond chandler books um the you know the marlowe stories it's just like the movie in insofar as the plot isn't really the driving force of the narrative but in a in a book you can be a little more explicit about oh this is pornography you know this guy's running a porn shop and and these kinds of things uh whereas in the movie because of the censorship and stuff they had to you know (laughs) they had to really what's funny about it is they have to kind of hide a lot of that stuff or push it under the rug um as best they can and yet you have these scenes like the the racing scene with bogart and bacall giving the it's like the most filthy (laughs) innuendo on the planet like it it i can't believe that scene got past the censors well so there's so much innuendo there's like the the afternoon that marlo spends with dorothy malone in the bookshop Oh God, yes. Yeah, we're we're just <laughs> supposed to think that they're just sitting quietly drinking. <laughs> I love I love when I love when she takes her glasses off and then suddenly he's like, Oh, you know, what a looker and it's like Dude. I actually look better with the glasses on. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I mean again, you know. Um but 
but yeah, I, the dude is yeah. There's there's a lot of innuendo in this movie, which is great. It's part of the reason it sparkles so so much and and is just so much fun. Um, but yeah. yes. And anyway, so it's it's like it's not it's not really clear what what in any given scene is motivating Lauren Bacall. So she's basically just floating through this movie being cool. Yeah. In every yeah. scene because she yeah. has no idea what is actually the plot in her character's relation to it. And right. it makes this for this like really weird tension between between her and Marlowe. And I like that that you pointed out kind of his uh, the way his relationship to women shifts in the second half of the film to where he instead of like attracting them and uh, they like do his bidding whenever like he needs a car. There's a, a pretty cab driver who comes along. I love um, that cab driver. They, they, you know, they become like openly contemptuous of him at the end, but he still relies on their help. Like he still needs Agnes to find Eddie Mars and Eddie Mars's wife just flat out hates him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's the difference in the end of the movie is that uh, the second half of the movie is that he really needs to, go to them as opposed to them coming to him um, right. or earlier in the picture. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think that's what, that's kind of what makes the film so compelling, even without a plot is, uh, and what makes it so much a, a film noir is because this is like the, the, the great theme of the post-war film noir is, is the, the world that the men come back from after the war uh, is much more female dominant than they remember, and they can't deal with that. In addition to all of the various traumas that they've got from fighting in a war, there's like right. women who but, are uh, being independent now too. Right, they're cab drivers and uh, librarians, and uh, yeah, all these other you know, yeah, uh, yeah they have money and power. Right. And so well, and, and, I, think, and this I, think, movie... I, think, I think the film like really taps into this, into this anxiety, mm -hmm. this post-war anxiety. Well, and it's interesting because the movie, you know, was filmed before the war, you know, most of it, a lot of it was filmed prior to uh, the war ending. You know, the, the movie was scheduled to be, like you said, it, it, it was pushed back because they had to add more scenes with Bacall and stuff yeah, like I that. It was, I think it was supposed to come out in 1945 and then got pushed back. Right, and I think that the 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 other cut of the film that has surfaced in the last decade or so, um, that was a that, that was a cut that was actually prepared for GIs, I think, like uh, yeah. as like a screener, uh, you know, prior to national release or whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, and there's there's like no uh, there's no reference to the war in the film. Like it it, it the book was written in book was published in what 1939, and and the the film like like a lot of uh, these film noirs, I think Double Indemnity also kind of takes place in the late 30s to kind of avoid questions about why all these men aren't actually, you know, fighting in wars. Right, right. But but it's it's in like every frame. You can you can really feel the war in, in films noir. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you have anything else? <laughs> Uh, I just love this movie. Yeah. I really do. Um, this, you you said at the beginning that um, you know this is probably both our you know a, a top contender for our film of the year for 1946, and um, it absolutely is for me. You know, and and 1946 is a is a 
really phenomenal year. And, and we'll be talking more about that um, throughout the course of 2016. Um, but this is one of those movies that every time I see it, I, I just like I said at the beginning, it contains multitudes. And, and to, to me, you know, a previous review I had of this on Letterboxd was it's the funniest movie in 1946. It's my favorite noir. It's it's got the you know one of the greatest on-screen romances of all time and yet it's still not the best Howard Hawks movie <laughs> because that guy was so freaking good and uh it, but every time i see it i'm like well maybe it is the best hawks i'm not really sure yeah i mean at at a, at a certain point it becomes like just ridiculous to to pick and choose between masterpieces it really is it, yeah. it really is um but it, it is my favorite Marlowe, you know. Um, yeah, we, we talked about uh, the Robert Mitchum, Farewell My Lovely, I think, last yes. year. Yes, yes. Uh, that, it goes without saying that does not hold a candle to this. No, does not at all. Um, and I was, I was more cool on that than a lot of people, but um, I don't think anybody would argue that that film is better than The Big Sleep. Yeah, I think... And if, Honestly, I think I think there's no doubt that this is the best of like the classic private detective films. Like it's it's so much better than the Maltese Falcon. Oh God, I don't like the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the Maltese Falcon. I think I think it's fine, but this is this has everything that that film is is lacking. Yeah, well, that's the difference between Houston and Hawks. Yeah, and <laughs> and a lot of my other favorite noirs are are not of this kind. They're not detective stories in the same way. Like, like out of the past, uh, Robert Mitchum plays a private detective, but he's not really like detecting anything. Right. Right. Uh, this is like, of like the mystery noirs. This is the best, I think without a doubt. Yeah. It's, it's so good. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break here before we dive into our Oscar discussion and, uh, all that good stuff. So uh, here's a little bit of music for you. That was a little bit of music by you. <laughs> As uh, all the music on the show now is uh, of your own composition and copyright. So congratulations. So take that, Prince. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's just me goofing around on GarageBand over the last, I don't know, five years or whatever. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, that that really is the the biggest difference between the George Sanders show and the Francis Farmer show. It's that <laughs> Francis Farmer respects co- copyright, whereas George Sanders doesn't give a fuck. He does not give a fuck. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, our parental advisory warning still remains intact, though. <laughs> well, I didn't have it before, but we just continued to ignore it. <laughs> and I'm, you know, fuck it, you know, for for kids. <laughs> You know, I actually, I, I drive around listening to podcasts with the kids in the car, and, and some of them, uh, mostly the Seahawks podcasts, are, are not child appropriate. Yeah. But I don't care. 
No, it's fine. Mm-hmm. They need a little spice in their life. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the, the kids on the in the preschool got to learn somewhere. Might as well. That's be right. Kids. Yeah, your kids. Are the... <laughs> That's it. Yeah. All right. So so the Oscars happened. They did. Did you watch them? I did. I always watch them. Every year I go to my aunt's house and we do, you know, we get burritos. We have a, a prize. Everybody fills out their ballots. You know, the same old same old shtick. Um, we've been doing it for 10 years now. How, how did I you, wouldn't miss it for the world. How did you do with your predictions? Uh, well, this year, you know, the last several years, I've done a lot of research before I went in. And I creamed everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was a bloodbath. I mean, you know, people people were stumbling out of there in a daze because I was beating them by, you know, uh, dozens, little dozens. Uh, every every year, my my aunt's boyfriend uh, he only he only gets like two right every year, which I think is adorable. But uh, so anyway, this year I was like, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna go in. I'm not gonna read up on it beforehand. I'm just gonna go in there. I'm going to fill out the ballot during the red carpet thing. Just go with my gut on what things are. And, you know, I mean, percentage wise, I didn't do so hot, but I did tie for first place. So I have to share the uh, Cinerama gift certificate. But um, that's OK. That's OK. What was your what was your total? How many did you miss? I, I think I had I think I got like 12, right? Ooh. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I did worse. <laughs> did you do research? I did worse than normal. I almost always end up right around uh, eighteen out of twenty-four, right? And and this year I got seventeen. So. Oh, some some years, ni- some years nineteen, but but it's usually <laughs> pretty much the same. I got. I got. No, and that and that's how I've been the previous the last like two or three years. I've been like I said, I've been really high up there. Yeah. Uh, I think last year I only missed a few, um, but. Yeah, um, I miss I miss two of the three shorts categories, and I miss I miss best picture, which uh, I think a lot of people miss best picture. Although, yeah, astute fans of the show, the old show, mm-hmm. might remember that I think I think I don't I don't know if this is actually true because I didn't go back to listen to it. I think I did call Spotlight as best picture, and you're like, I think it's going to be the big short. Yeah. I think I I think I called it on that show. Yeah. Actually, I might but, have gotten eight wrong because I, I miss director too. As I'm looking at my predictions. I could. Yeah, I just, that was I, just a... I couldn't. I I knew that they were going to do it, but I just could not admit to myself that they were going to give Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari two, two another one awards. Another one. Yeah, and he's he's got and, one more than Martin and Scorsese. Did. And then and then when when like Mad Max was winning everything, I was like, oh yeah, I he, they're going to give him best director too because I know. On, on clearly they they recognized that on a technical level, Mad Max was the best Hollywood <laughs> film of the year, right? And then they gave director to Alejandro Gonzalez. Yeah. Seniority. No, while, while watching the program and when Mad Max started sweeping all those technical awards, I you know got really loud and boisterous in the room and I was like, "All right, everybody, Mad Max is night." And then like the minute I said that, it stopped winning stuff. Oh well, thank you for that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, so how'd you feel? Did, did, it, it was the, the director, the biggest, uh, uh, setback, the, the biggest pain in your side, uh, from the, 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 uh, winners? Yeah. I mean, obviously if, if Mad Max had won, it would have been one of my favorite best picture winners 
ever. I think I think I looked before. I think it would have been top twenty of all the best picture winners, maybe top fifteen. Uh, yeah, it was uh, like it was my favorite. It would have been my favorite best picture winner since Unforgiven. Yeah, in nineteen ninety two, but it really didn't have a shot at at best picture. I thought it had a shot at director. Uh, among the other stuff, like I like when Marnie was there more than Inside Out. I like uh, uh, I love World of Tomorrow, obviously, and I didn't watch any of the other animated shorts. But yeah, you know. uh, World of Tomorrow that wouldn't hurt. That that one really, really yeah. you know, I didn't expect it to win. I actually, I I did predict Bear Story to win it. Yeah, but, so, uh, so did I. But I was not uh, not too pleased with that. Um, yeah, I, visual effects. I I, I would have gone with Force Awakens. I think over over Ex Machina, but I Ex Machina is fine. I, what they did with, yeah. with such a little budget is is impressive, and that's cool. Yeah. I the. the what do you think of the, the telecast? Revenant. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. The Revenant. <laughs> I'm so I'm so sick of of Emmanuel Levesky. <laughs> And it's, you know, I'm I'm not, I love uh, his work with Terrence Malick, obviously. He's a great cinematographer. And so I mean, maybe it's not him. Maybe it's just the Quaron and, and Inyarito and the what things that they make him do. But I'm just, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of unmotivated long takes. I I, I agree with you on that. I, I definitely. And um, it, it like started with, uh, with Children of Men. Yes. Had, you know just pointless long takes and it's only gotten worse and it i i mean like i fear for the future of cinema because all of these like film students are going to be out there trying to make another bird man (laughs) yeah no enough yeah i i hear you on that uh absolutely i mean i think uh I can't remember all the nominees in that category, but definitely Deacons should have won it over that. Um, and yeah, for, you know. c- for cinematography, yeah, of those I would have gone with with Mad Max. Actually. Well, yeah, once yeah. again I would have gone Mad Max. Yeah, totally, yeah. absolutely. I, I read George Miller said something recently, uh, which I was really gratified to hear. He um, he said Mad Max would have been better if it was black and white. And I was like, oh my god. Yeah. That's exactly, you know. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's rumors of a black and white version of it that is supposed to be on like a future Blu-ray or something. Yeah. Uh, that, so that would be really cool to see. So great, yeah. So. But the colors in it are so great. So. Oh no! Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as for the telecast itself, I mean, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> as as usual. Uh, I, it wasn't as bad as Neil Patrick Harris. That was really bad. Yeah. Like, like I remember him doing that magic thing where he's like the the envelope for best pictures in this like like clear box or whatever and or whatever the hell I'm I don't know. Yeah, it was yeah, just, that, that was just that was no dumb. good. <laughs> so good. Yeah, but it but it's always dumb and it's always dumb in like the same ways and yeah uh, yeah. One of I, the the nice things in in recent years, I've been uh, like uh, live tweeting my my fake movie award uh, during the telecast. So I actually spend most of the show staring at my computer as I type rather than actually watching it. So it it's much more enjoyable that way. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, actually, most of the telecast, I, I, I'm just usually bloviating over it, you know, um, trying to, you know, command the room. Yeah. <laughs> it's my, it's my one time to shine. Because you're usually just talking over me on this show, so that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, another Oscars down. You know, oh, uh, I, did, I, I, did, I did call Mark Rylance though over Stallone, so I, I'm ah, that one. I was happy with that pick. I mean, I, I, I was really confident that Rylance was going to get it and not Stallone. Like, if yeah. I, yeah, like that was that was one upset that I had no doubt they were going to do because they do it every year. There's always yeah, like some veteran actor who's never won an award before, and everyone's like, obviously they're going to win it, and they never do. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's the best thing in Bridge of Spies. So, yeah, and well, it, it helps that he's very good. He is very good. And his but, and his but speech, if, but if it, but if he wasn't, they would have given it to like Mark Ruffalo or something. Like they were not going to give Sylvester Stallone an acting award. <laughs> <laughs> the nomination uh, is enough for him. Right. Um, yeah. Rylance's speech was good. I thought it was the best speech of the night. It was yeah. Not that I don't think Stallone is great, and and he was very good in, in Creed, but that's how they think. Hey, he was robbed for Cobra back in '86. I tell you, I mean that that performance. He should have won screenwriting for that one too, because that movie's insane. <laughs> you ever seen Cobra? I have not seen Cobra. <laughs> oh, you got to see Cobra. Oh, his character's name is Cobretti, and he cuts his pizza with a with scissors, and. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. You mean so. we don't cut our pizza with scissors? You do you cut your pizza with scissors? Sure. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you're a weird guy. You know. I'm, I'm not that weird. Okay. Right. Good. So what? what um, so that's that. That's the Oscars. That's that's the Oscars. I can't. I can't wait for the Oscar hype for 2017 to start in like two weeks. That's right. It's like presidential elections, you know, when one's over to just start the next one. So, yeah. Um, Well, turning our eyes uh, locally, uh, as we said, we're tying this show in now more with our Seattle screen scene website. Um, And part of that, we'll be kind of discussing things that are coming up playing here, things that we're excited that are going to be getting onto Seattle screens. And, um, is, do you have a do you have something that's particularly exciting coming down the pipeline in the month of March, Sean? Uh, uh, Would you like up, to highlight? Yeah, coming up. Uh, um, the not this coming week, but the week after, uh, Scarecrow has some really cool stuff going on in their in their screening room. Uh, in particular, uh, Troop Beverly Hills. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they are playing that. That's playing that. true. Uh, they, they've got a double feature of uh, of the Playhouse and Sherlock Jr., which I think did we do that double feature at at the Metro? We didn't play the Playhouse. We, didn't we play did. Uh, we did. We did Sherlock Jr. in the general. Oh, okay. Uh, they've also got Irma Vep, which is uh, a very great Olivia Sayas Maggie Chung movie, and uh, uh, Streetwise, which was a movie that we talked about watching this week, but didn't because I thought it would be depressing. Yeah, and then you're like, "How about Fire Walk with me?" <laughs> right. Uh, yes, I love. Uh, yeah, I, I've talked about Streetwise a number of times on the show, and uh, 
I, I'm assuming Scarecrow's playing it off of VHS because I don't think it's on disc. Um, and so, yeah, people know. should definitely try and get out there uh, to see that movie because it is it is incredibly depressing, but it's also um, it's also very you know uh, topical because right now Seattle is dealing with a lot of issues regarding homeless uh, populations, um, and and it goes to show that nothing's really changed in 30 years. So it's it's definitely really good. Um, yeah, that's cool. The, uh, Scarecrow's screening room, which they I don't know if we've talked about this on the show. They did a fundraiser um, through at the store for a few months um, where you could round up your um, purchases and uh, contribute to turning their screening room into an actual screening room. <laughs> um, just like a room with a big TV. Yeah, a room with a big TV and uncomfortable uh, chairs. They're actually going to convert it into a closed off. You know, you, there's not just a curtain, so you won't be hearing, you know, families running through the building um, screening room. Uh, so th- that's really exciting. I don't know what the time frame is on that, but um, that's really wonderful stuff from Scarecrow. And I'm, I'm glad they're uh, pushing their boundaries, doing new and exciting things uh, with their nonprofit status. Yes. <laughs> anything, uh, anything going on in Seattle that appeals to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some other things that are, are coming around. Um, you know, if I had gone last week on Thursday, Seattle Art Museum played uh, on 35 for a few dollars more, uh, which if I had been able to make it out for that, I would have been even more excited to go see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is playing at the Cinemark. Um, I, that one's going to be digital, um, unfortunately, yeah. but I know. I know, but I'm saying it would have been cool to see them both, you know, back to back uh, yeah, in the course definitely. of a week or whatever. Um, and yeah, so, you know, there's stuff like that um, that I would like to go check out. Yeah. So, yeah, the the Cinemark uh, classic film series, they play every Sunday and Wednesday. And uh, sometimes it's like tie in, ties in with TCM, but sometimes it's just it's just them. I'm pretty sure they're all over the country, not just Seattle specific. But they play an old movie, usually something fairly well known, uh, and they play them on Sundays and Wednesdays, which is which is neat. It's basically it's exactly what we tried to get Landmark to do, actually. Yep, and uh, just hopping on that bandwagon. Yeah, and I gotta say the Cinemark, uh, the Lincoln Square uh, Cinemark in uh, Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate Bellevue. That's the city of Bellevue. I, I despise it every time I go there. I I just it it makes me just you know, not my skin. Um, but I actually do for a kind of mall theater. Uh, the Lincoln square is actually really cool. The presentation's always great. The seats are comfortable. I've never had an issue with the crowd being annoying. Um, and they get some good stuff over there and, and they, you know, they, they do play some, um, you know, off kilter things. I guess they play a lot of Bollywood stuff. Yeah, and, they, uh, they are the area center for for Bollywood films. They usually have uh, two or three screens at least playing playing Indian movies, uh, and not just Bollywood, but but uh, Tamil films and yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I gotta give a shout out to them because I do like them, and they're they're just above the, the their floor above the Container Store, which uh, I would be remiss if my girlfriend didn't have me say big ups to the Container Store because she loves the Container Store. So uh, <laughs> I think, I think I've the, only been in Bellevue like three times in my life. So it's a terrible place. Yeah. It's a, a pock upon its citizens. I I, I hate it. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, this week we're gonna, you know, talk about 
fi- Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and uh, to tie in with that, our essential will be picking our the essential David Lynch film. And we've talked about David Lynch in passing a number of times on the show, uh, but we, uh, we've never talked in depth about his career or um, a, a film in particular. So I know that you... I wouldn't say you're n- you're not a decided fan of David Lynch, but you did kind of avoid David Lynch for a while, um, if if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Sean? There was a period you weren't really diving into the Lynch uh, world. Yeah, that is uh, that is true. For a long time, I was I was kind of anti David Lynch, and and partially that was because I saw Blue Velvet and didn't get it, and just reacted really negatively to it. And then I saw uh, Dune uh, going into it with a mindset that it was just a terrible, bizarre movie to watch when you're high and laugh at. And uh, <laughs> and then and then uh, which I, which is not it which is not totally a misguided uh, conception of that movie. Uh, well, maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, anyway. Uh, uh, and then, and then, so I just kind of wrote him off as just somebody who was who was overrated, who I didn't like. And then I kept meeting people who were like huge David Lynch fans, like in the in the late '90s. They like seemed to be everywhere. Like I I don't know who the most like obnoxious uh, film bro guys are now. Like, is it still Christopher <laughs> Nolan fans who like? No, it's it's uh, uh, Gonzalez and Yara too, dude. Does he have fans? <laughs> apparently somebody's given him awards anyway like that was what david lynch was like in like 1996 and so my my antipathy towards him uh grew enormously based on the obnoxiousness of his fan base uh but as i you know got older i i gave him another chance and i watched uh lost highway for our friend Ryland was doing like a Lynch blog blogathon or something, and so I watched Lost Highway and absolutely loved it. And then I watched Mulholland Drive, and the same thing. I, I it's an, an amazing movie, one of the best films of the century. And then I watched Wild at Heart, and I was like, eh. <laughs> so I went back to being kind of mixed on on Lynch, and I, and I haven't I haven't gotten the the nerve to rewatch Blue Velvet, although. Not last year, but the year before that, when we were watching 1984 films, I did rewatch Dune, like the longest version that's out there of it, and I really, really liked it. <laughs> like, I think it's yeah. a legitimately good movie. So, and I've since I... seen Eraserhead as well, and and I like that as well too. So, I am I am I am pro Lynch now, although I am still somewhat trepidatious of the Lynch heads. I, it's understandable to be scared of the lynch heads. I, I I totally I totally know what you're saying. Are they um, are they the lynch mob? The <laughs> yes, they are. I think that's actually what Ryland called the 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 uh, the blogathon, didn't he? I, I think it was I, I called. No the, oh, I think that's what it may have been called. So so, what's your essential lynch pick then? Well, I think Mulholland Drive, I think, is his best movie. But but for me, it would be Lost Highway because that was the one that I watched and, and I like, I got Lynch. It was like, okay, I, I watched this movie and I, I see where you're coming from now. I see what you're doing, the way that you're mixing old Hollywood uh, modes of storytelling with kind of surrealist uh, uh, plot structures and imagery. And, 
you know, in, in order to get a, like the dark heart of Americana. Like I, I get that now. And it was right. Lost Highway that made that click for me. Uh, that's a great film and actually is also my gateway Lynch film. Um, I, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I, I would, uh, well, I'll talk about, I'll talk more about it in a minute when we, when we have our discussion about Firewalk with me, but, um, I avoided David Lynch because he scared me <laughs> for a long time. Um, but, but Lost Highway was the movie that I saw in high school that I was like, what the hell is this? And it, it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, but it also just like affected me in such a, a primal way that it stuck with me for for so, so very long. I mean, it, it stuck with me for five years until I saw Mulholland Drive in the theater um, and just was absolutely floored by it. Um, and it's a film that I, I, I got the Blu-ray for Christmas and I haven't seen it since I saw that 2001 screening and yet so much of, of that movie is just, just burned into my brain. Um, club silencio and all that stuff. And I mean, just Naomi Watts on the escalator. I mean, there's so much of that movie that's just like permanently imprinted on my brain. Um, and that's what I think is so great about David Lynch is he taps into something, um, so, I know primordial that like, it just like, it just stays with you. Um, but for me, and I, and I have talked about it before, um, I think my favorite Lynch film is Eraserhead. I think it's I, I always I always love when artists, whether they're musicians like Captain Beefheart or the Ramones, um, or their directors like Sachet Ray or uh, Orson Welles or somebody comes out with their first work. You know, I mean Lynch obviously made some short films and stuff, but like yeah, it's the, 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 it's the first uh, feature I think. feature film. Uh, where their aesthetic is so perfectly defined in that initial push, you know, and, and, and Eraserhead is, is probably the, might be the greatest example of that, where if you wanted to say, here's what David Lynch is all about, show them Eraserhead and you're going to, I mean, that's what he's all about. And he's, you know, he's, he's moved into different kind of realms and he's, and he's tried on different things in the ensuing decades. You know, like I've, I've, I've found the lost highway Mulholland drive, the, the way it plays with um, identity really interesting and stuff where characters become actors play different characters and stuff throughout the film and stuff. Um, and that's not really an Eraserhead, but what well, is in char- there? Characters become different people. Right. Exactly. Um, but what it, but in Eraserhead, you you have this melding of just the absolute horror uh, that is in this world, this in, in this kind of intangible just fear that's just you know bubbling up uh, in, in in nooks and crannies. But then also marrying that with this just kind of beautiful embrace of that and then it's just trans transcendent transcendental which is something that he's really into meditation but like it, it gets to this transcendent kind of uh i don't know release uh, in his movies and i think eraserhead is is a perfect example of that so um, eraserhead is really funny yeah it's funny it's scary it's beautifully shot it's um I mean, the lady in the radiator, like, I mean, you know, makes me want to cry. Like, I mean, I just, I love, I love it. It's such a good movie. And the dad from Bill and Ted's dad from Bill and Ted's in it. I mean, it's, you can't, you can't be, it can't be beat. So yeah, I think, 
I think one one of the, one of the problems I found that that I had a lot, and I and I suspect I'm not alone. Um, when when first like starting out with a director like David Lynch or or a lot of art house directors, uh, is not understanding when they were being funny and thinking everything was meant to be like completely serious and arty and important right. all the time. And I think you know that's one of the things I learned as I got older is that sometimes great directors are funny and i think that helped a lot with david lynch because he does have a really terrific very strange sense of humor <laughs> he does i mean we're we'll talk about it with fire walk with me like there, there's some funny stuff going on in that movie yeah <laughs> um and and it, and it, and and it, and and if you embrace that, you you get a, a better appreciation for the 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 work as a whole. You know, yeah, it, it it doesn't demean the artistry or the uh, the the horrors or whatever else you know you're looking for in the film. Um, yeah, it, and I think I think that was that was actually my my initial exposure to David Lynch was was Twin Peaks when it when it aired originally on TV. I was I was like 14 years old when it was on and it was such a huge critical smash it was like it was you know hailed as like the first actual instance of tv as art so my introduction to it was that it was important and it was it was uh you know serious and it was difficult and a 14 year old me watched it and i did not understand it at all i watched like (laughs) I watched like you know like two or three episodes in the middle of the first season with like having no understanding of what was going on, and it didn't make any sense, and I was just annoyed by it. And then I watched uh, Firewalk with me when it came out without having <laughs> actually watched the show, and the first what forty five minutes, half hour of Firewalk with me uh, was just infuriating to me. Because I thought it was serious, and like right. it is serious in a sense, but it's also really, really funny. It's but I didn't, so ridiculous. I didn't get that at all. Right, right. And and so that that really is, you know, one of the things that colored my perception of David Lynch is this misapprehension of a, a you know a fourteen, fifteen year old kid that art can't be funny. Right, right. Stupid you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're absolutely right. We're, we all we're all there. Whenever you, you know, when you're young, uh, you think a sign of maturity is is being serious, and right. and 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 so you go into these things with you know, with your thinking cap on and your you know chin resting in your hands, and you're ready to you know get down to serious stuff, and then yeah, then David Lynch throws out a you know gobble gobble or something and you're like yeah and, you, we, you and, take we should, it seriously. and we should probably transition to to firewalk with me now because like i think i think the first that first section of that is parodying that mindset exactly so, so let's, uh, let's take a break and hear a little yeah. clip from the film um yes yeah do you think that if you were falling in space that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster
So talking about, you know, uh, being juvenile and, and, you know, having your own opinions about things is my, my first experience with Firewalk with me is, is like most David Lynch things burned in my brain. And I didn't even see, I hadn't even seen the movie. I, uh, was at the mall and, um, in the suburbs and at the dollar theater Firewalk with me was playing and I was walking by and I just saw the poster hanging up in the lobby and I looked at it. I looked up at it. I remember looking up at it. It must have been raised high or something like that. And the poster alone and the words Firewalk with me scared the crap out of me. And I, you know, I was like 11, I think 11 or 12 when that came out. I must have been 11. Um, and I didn't see it. I didn't see the movie for like a decade. But but seeing that poster and seeing the picture of uh, Cheryl Lee uh, with the flames and it says Firewalk with me just gave me this weird sense, this weird chill. And I was and I was and I was just petrified of what possibly could be going on in a movie like that. And I didn't I didn't see it. I was terrified. Um, fast forward 10 years and I'm in my early 20s. And I was traveling with uh, my friends, and we we were in Olympia, Washington, uh, for the night, and which is kind of Twin Peaks country, um, Pacific Northwest, small town kind of thing. And uh, I got incredibly drunk. I mean, like really, really drunk. Like the only time I've ever been thrown out of a bar was that night, and I passed out in some bushes and. Anyway, long story short, I woke up the next morning with like a huge, huge hangover. Just, I mean, really pounding, splitting headache, just really bad. And so with uh, this guy, Chris, and I walked to the Safeway, which was like a block away from where we were staying. And we both got like some odd wallaby monsters. And we went back to this house we were staying at. And we threw ourselves into this living room. And I just had this horrible headache. I'm lying on the couch. And he puts in Firewalk with me. And... I still had these kind of adolescent uh, terrors about the film, but I was so hungover that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't move. And so I, I didn't even watch the movie this time. I just like listened to it. It kind of in pieces, but trying to like not listen to it because it scared me so much. And I was just feeling horrible, but it was playing in the background and it was, it was such a perfect soundtrack for this just day of this wasted day in my life. And then fast forward seven years or so, and I'm living in Seattle now, and I, uh, I've watched Twin Peaks, the show, and I've enjoyed the parts of it that are enjoyable, and I've detested the parts that are absolutely detestable, and there's plenty of that in the show. Um, and finally, you know, we finish it, and we, we, we say, okay, it's time to watch Fire Walk With Me. And so as probably happens with a lot of people that watch Fire Walk With Me after binge-watching the show, it's definitely a weird experience. It's not exactly what you expect. And I appreciate that now, but we'll get to that. But the movie lived up to its terrifying expectations, and I was fucking scared as hell watching this movie. I remember having to turn away when Bob sneaks into Laura's room and copulates with her. I like It, it turned my stomach so much and i'm like 28 right now at this point i it was it was it filled me with such a sense of just dread and just uh, just absolute horror and i just could not i couldn't look at it i could not look at the screen i had to wait until it was over um 
And then I watched it for the second time earlier today, and it's really good. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, I don't think it's amazing. I know some people out there... Uh, Matt Lynch uh, is a huge champion of this film. Matt works at Scarecrow. We've talked about him before. Uh, he, I think he thinks this is David Lynch's best work ever, um, and I can't meet him there on that. Uh, I really can't. Um, but it is it is it is such an interesting movie on so many different levels as a prequel to a hit tv show as an artistic expression as a portrait of incest and you know sexual abuse i mean it is unflinching and raw and honest and and just you know incredibly horrible yeah and and emotional and 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 um it's it's a movie that I think continues to grow in esteem because this movie, when this movie came out, nobody liked this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I can kind of understand why. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a really difficult film in that it's kind of, uh, well, I mean, it is, it is so, so emotional and so unflinching, but also, you know, and I don't really know how it relates to the show because like, like I said, I haven't, I haven't watched the show but i think that first section is so different in tone and style from everything that that falls after it could it could almost be a completely separate film and that's kind of where i'm like that's what's holding me back from declaring this to be just an absolute masterpiece is i haven't figured out how the first part fits in with what comes after because everything from the one year later title on is like you know best film of the 90s quality it's 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 really that good yeah and well like you said you know the the reason this infuriated so many people is you know for the most part it's that first 45 minutes where we don't see any of the characters where we we know from the show right, um, we, have, we have chris isaac and Kiefer sutherland uh sent by by david lynch uh, who very loudly orders them to investigate uh, an unrelated murder, which we later find happened a year before Laura Palmer's murder. Right. And and I should say David Lynch, uh, David Lynch's character is on the TV show. He's the one kind of uh, carryover from that in that opening section from the TV show. But um, he was kind of a bit character on the show. Um, but but um but yeah, it, it, if you go into this, if you're a diehard Twin Peaks fan and you go into this and, and you know, it's it, you want the warm fuzzies or the equivalent thereof in, in Twin Peaks speak. Um, and, and what you get is these totally different characters doing different things and David Lynch doubling down on just what the fuckery, um, which is a, a, a epitomized in, in, in probably one of the greatest gags i think um that david lynch has ever pulled off where his uh fbi director <laughs> sends out this woman in uh in, in a, a wig yeah. in a red dress with a blue rose who does this funny little dance while squeezing her fists um and it's supposed to be uh communicating something to chris isaac's character and it is the most pretentious artsy fartsy thing you could possibly imagine and it's in to totally intentional on david lynch's part but most people in 1992 
I don't think understood the joke. <laughs> yeah, I, I did not. And that's like the one thing that I remember from watching Firewalk with me at, at like age 16 or whatever is, you know, symbolism. Oh my God. Right. This is how I'm supposed to read the rest of this film. When the, the I, now I, I, I think I understand that, that the whole point is to make fun of people who look for symbolism in everything. Yeah. I, I think that it is, is, is intentionally skewering a fairly large demographic of the twin peaks community that was watching every episode for clues on Laura Palmer's death. When the reality of the show was, you know, David Lynch's original idea for the show was that Laura Palmer's death, was just going to be the jumping off point for this show about all these characters in this town. And her death was going to be unsolved because it was supposed to recede into the background. Um, but everybody was so obsessed with who killed Laura Palmer that it, you know, right. ran away with the show. And, and that's absolutely what he's uh, poking fun at there. Yeah. And it, and, and I love, and, 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 and he does it so blatantly, too. The next scene is Kiefer Sutherland being like, what did all that mean? And then Chris Isaac explaining it. And, and it's totally ridiculous. But then, he, but then he leaves it with, I will not tell you what the blue rose means, which is just such a lovely little middle finger to, to everybody. Just because, of course, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just playing with people's, you know, desire for uh clarity or whatever um yeah and uh speaking of desire for clarity what i desired to know uh is what is going on with david bowie <laughs> like uh, I, I i'm completely baffled by that like i i can deal with with the the joke of of lil in the red dress but you know, I really like the image of, of Agent Cooper going back and forth to look at himself on the security camera and then his like image freezes there and then David Bowie walks by. I, I like that. And then David Bowie walks by and he starts yelling and then he disappears. And I have no idea who that character is, what he's talking about. Uh, nobody does. He's, okay. He's, yeah. Uh, it doesn't like a reference to anything in the TV show or? Absolutely not. Okay. No. No, just, he's he's just a, he's just an FBI agent that disappeared two years ago and he shows up again, but maybe he didn't show up. Maybe it was a ghostly apparition. Um, there are on the I watched the Blu-ray that came out last year. I think it was last year in the in the complete comprehensive uh, box set of Twin Peaks, and there's like an hour and a half of. Uh, deleted scenes and stuff um that are really high quality it's not just like a clapboard kind of like you know here's something we kind of thought we'd try but i mean it's like you know there's music to it it's it's cut well um and there is this there is an earlier scene of david Bowie's character at a hotel in i think mexico and he gets a letter and then he leaves uh but it doesn't really explain anything more about what happened with him uh when he returns to the fbi offices um but it's a great performance by Bowie trying on this really uh, heavy southern accent. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to talk about Jane or whatever he says, uh, which I think is really funny. But um, I don't think there's an answer to the David Bowie conundrum. Okay, so so am I to understand that, that uh, Kyle MacLachlan is somewhat psychic and he and a, a gang of weirdos who are also somewhat psychic are attempting to rescue Laura Palmer from her inevitable fate through her dreams? Well, 
you can talk about kind of like X-Men. You can something. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can talk about I mean, here's the thing. Firewalk with me is so different from the TV show in so many ways. Like Cooper's character on the show definitely had a bit of a spiritual kind of clairvoyance to him. There's a there's a famous scene where he um, he's going to solve some part of a of a of the case or he's going to come to some conclusion by throwing rocks at tin cans or whatever. And, uh, you know, he he steps like 90 feet away and he starts throwing these rocks and then he comes to some conclusion. Or whatever. But his character in the movie is a lot more somber than he is on the show. On the show, he's he's loving the pie and he's always talking to Diane, who is his like secretary. And he's much more charming. And, and, and in this, he seems he he seems more uh resigned to the fate of Laura Palmer and and what's going to happen well, well, to he her seemed, he seems urgent he seems to think that he can save her yes and i the, okay i i i can't talk <laughs> i can't talk about cooper without talking about the show and if i talk about cooper on the show i'm going to get into some heavy duty stuff that's really awesome but like we'll kind of derail this conversation okay um so i don't know if i should do that so um right. yeah that's fine i do uh, like the scene with him and miguel ferrar when when ferrar's like gonna test his psychic abilities and then it's like and that's like half the high school girls in america <laughs> yeah yeah that's another little dig it yeah the whole the whole conception of this um and so and so the movie then goes like you said 45 minutes later after chris isaac magically disappears um it does go back to Twin Peaks and it goes back to the, the final week in Laura Palmer's life. And, and, um, and, 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 and once again, it's, it's frustrating for fans. I think some fans, I, it's a much easier movie to watch when you have distance from the TV show, which is what I did when I watched it today. Um, and when you kind of know what you're getting yourself into, um, where your expectations are, are not, not important anymore. Um, because so much about this is so different from the show. First of all, Moira Kelly wasn't on the show. It was Laura Flynn Boyle, um, yeah, so she was recast. Was, <clears throat> I've seen I've seen enough of the the show to to miss Laura Flynn Boyle. <laughs> um, not, that, Sherilyn... not that I don't have an undying love for Moira Kelly. Sure, um, and Sherilyn Fenn, who was a huge part of the TV show, is not in the movie. Um, a lot of people aren't. Jack Nance from Eraserhead is the guy that finds Laura Palmer on the TV show. He finds her dead body. He's not on it. There's a lot of characters that got, don't show up in this. Um, but that's unimportant because the movie is about the last week in Laura Palmer's life. And and it really gives a great showcase for Cheryl Lee, who on the show, she does play a different character on the show. She comes in and plays this character, Maddie, who's a relation. Uh, but um, for a woman that was literally cast just to be a dead body initially um to go to onto this i mean i think cheryl lee's performance here is incredible i think it's she's, absolutely she's so good it's amazing like it, it it like brings tears to my eyes how good she is in this movie and 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 you know Lynch, david lynch is one of the great directors for women like like he he, he really comes with such great roles so 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 deep and varied and multifaceted uh roles for women and i don't think there's been one that's been as uh amazing as laura palmer and it's so interesting because on the show well, I mean, she's I, this... I, I, I would have said naomi watts and mulholland drive but i think this it might even be better 
Yeah, I've. I mean, yeah, I love Naomi Watts. I yeah. love her, but. Uh, but this, it's so, it, it's such a hard thing to play because on the show, Laura Palmer means something different to everybody on the show. And, and she's, she, you know, she's, she's the prom queen or homecoming queen with, you know, good grades, but she's also a drug dealer and a prostitute. And it, it, you can't imagine one person inhabiting all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And yet Cheryl Lee does it in this movie. She absolutely nails it. She has she has one 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 shot uh, near the the beginning of her of her role. It's like they're they're leaving school and uh, her boyfriend is like mad at her because they didn't. Uh, he was waiting for her the night before, and uh, Cheryl Lee completely defangs him just with a look. She like cocks yep. her head and and it's it's amazing to see because you know that like beautiful people and actors ha- actresses and and actors have that power but to like actually see it before your eyes how she changes from a normal person into like pure charisma and totally you know twists him around to do her will is is really kind of astounding yeah it's it's really it's really remarkable and then but and then that's she just also- like and that's just like the beginning of her performance <laughs> Right. It goes because, in so many different uh places from there. Yeah, and she she you know, she has that confidence, that charm, that that uh just you know, like you said charisma to her um but and but then as you start seeing like the vulnerability and just the pain and sorrow that her, you know, her character goes through like every every day of her life, I mean, it's just it's astounding. I mean, it really is like she is so good in this movie and and that that alone should be reason that this movie should be um you know as it should be well regarded because um it's 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 really phenomenal um what she does here yes (sighs) um sorry i get worked up i get worked up talking about the whole you know thing but yeah, she, she's great. And we talked we talked just a, a couple of weeks ago about uh, the Claire Denis film Bastards, which which reminded us both of, of Firewalk With Me, especially in the way that it ends. Uh, but this to me is so much more compelling a story like like Denis story is a, a story of like incest and sexual abuse, but told uh, in such a way that we are like to be outraged at the men in power that are you know, exploiting people. Whereas this is told from the perspective of the victim in a way that that's like so sympathetic and so empathetic, it, it makes it much more emotionally devastating than than Bastards was. Yeah, you're you're much more detached watching Bastards than you are. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, with more, this it's, movie. it's very academic, like you want to critique capitalism after watching Bastards, like watching this, you just like want to curl up in a ball and cry. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And um, like I said, this is it's such a, you know, for all of the weird stuff that happens and there you know there's plenty of weird stuff after the first 45 minutes in this movie i mean that you know you get a return to the um the red room from the show and you got the the man from another uh place you know talking backwards and um garmin bosia and all this all this weird fucking shit still happens in this movie but at the same time it's such a raw and honest depiction of 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 kind of this anguish um 
that you know her character is so she well once again she's multifaceted because she seems so helpless like she's so she can't escape this horror this evil that's surrounding her you know no matter what she tries to do and yet she's also so kind of heroic for um i don't know i, I for me the ending of this movie might be the most beautiful ending of a David Lynch film ever. And it's weird to say because it's after this woman is basically raped and killed <laughs> by her dad um, and then thrown in plastic into a river. But like when the angels return uh, to Laura Palmer and she gets like a, a, a brief moment of salvation, even if it's in death, like, I don't know. It, it just, it's so compassionate that I just... It's its a really beautiful spiritual statement at the end of, of you know, the, the hope that a, a woman who who is so damaged can, you know, the the belief that she'll find some kind of peace. Yeah. It's, it, it's a it's a really um, forgiving and, 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 yeah, compassionate just view on, on those kinds of things. And, you know, and David Lynch, you know, he's uh, his his mo, his modus operandi, as uh, as uh, does it, he says that at the beginning of the movie, right? My ammo, that's you know, the, my ammo is here. The one thing he explains. <laughs> yeah, my my modus operandi, but you know, he's exposing the you know the the seedy underbelly of you know middle America or whatever. Um, but he also, but he's not just you know, he's not just making a sideshow out of it. He's, he's genuinely like engaged in it. And he has an affection for these people too. Like he, it's not, it's not like just exploiting, um, horrors or whatever. It's, it's really, you know, winnowing down into, into the depths of the, the pain and suffering that these, you know, people go through. Yeah. Yeah. the the other movie it reminded me of like the the bastards connection is pretty obvious the other one is rebel without a cause mm. uh especially in her scenes with uh who's the motorcycle guy the james Marcus, <laughs> james james play like rebel without a cause uh but we're seeing it from the natalie wood character's point of view as opposed to the james dean character and right. and in in this world the kind of the romance of the James Dean biker figure as the outsider uh, is totally ineffectual. Like it can't, it can't solve the Natalie Woods character's problem. That's a good, that's a really good read on that. Yeah. And and it's interesting that James, I mean, you know, yeah, we can talk about other characters on, in the film because um they're they're also really interesting and so like uh james is is the motorcycle riding you know normally he'd be the bad guy or like the tough guy i wouldn't say bad guy but like bad boy you know um but he's he's so sensitive and he just loves laura so much and he's got his puppy dog eyes and stuff and and, he's so pretty um, and he's so nice and he just wants to make a safe space for her yeah and he's so dumb (laughs) <laughs> so dumb. the worst part of the tv show the uh, i'm just gonna t- there's a section in season two of the tv show where james ends up at this like mansion and it turns into like literally a soap opera and it is the most excruciating television you'll ever watch in your life i mean it is really hard to watch um but yeah that's a really good point yeah um i and i also i i i love seeing 
how Laura's kind of, you know, she she's kind of a Christ figure in terms of like uh, taking on everybody's sins. Like when she she ends up with Donna, um, Donna follows her to uh, Jacques Renault's, you know, uh, seedy, very seedy fucking club. Um where you know she's she's basically gonna prostitute herself out to these you know really sleazy men or whatever um but when she sees her friend doing the same things that she's doing she she goes out of her way to protect her and uh, and save her friend um and it and it's uh it, it, it's interesting that laura palmer is such an interesting character because if i met her in high school i would have hated her gut <laughs> you know um for so many different reasons, you know what I mean. But um, but she's so real, and uh, and and she's got this heart to her. And and there's a moment early in the film where she she's at her wits end, and and you know she Bob has come and 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 tore out pages of her diary, and she's freaking the fuck out. And she and she says Bob wants to become me. He wants to take over me which is a big part of the TV show. And what happens to her dad is, you know, he's taken over by Bob, this, this, you know, evil incarnate or whatever. And the whole movie is about Laura trying whatever she can, whether it's drugs or sex or, uh, and you know, anything to, to, you know, not give in to Bob. And, and she kind of wins that battle, like by giving her life up, she, 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 she beats Bob in a way, um, which is uh, kind of triumphant, even though it's incredibly sad. <laughs> I think uh, speaking of Bob, the that first glimpse that we see of her when she of him when he when she comes home from school and and sees Bob like looking behind her dresser is uh, one of the scariest images I've ever I've ever seen, and I still remember it from you know twenty five years ago watching it. And and still remember that sh that shot just being horrifying, uh, and uh, it's not as scary as the original appearance of Bob from the TV show yeah. uh, when Bob first shows up on the TV show, which turns out and this is why David Lynch is so great. It was an accident. The guy that plays Bob was just like a gaffer. He's not an actor. He was just he happened to accidentally be in the shot when the camera panned into this room. And David Lynch saw that, like, and and he was like, "We're keeping that because when you see it on the show, it's just like, what the fuck is that guy doing there? This like <laughs> long-haired greaser dude, right. you know." Um, and and it's perfect. It's absolutely a perfect uh, encapsulation of that that uh, creeping terror. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and speaking of Bob, I I, I want to uh, praise Ray Wise's performance as uh, as Leland Palmer because I think. Uh, I, I saw, like I said, I, I saw this movie when it came out or shortly after it came out. And I have always been freaked out by Ray Wise ever since. Like whenever he shows up on a TV show, I am, I get incredibly nervous. Yeah. Uh, he, well, he looks like the devil. Yeah. He's on, he's on, uh, his recurring character on fresh off the boat right now, like an ABC family sitcom. He's like the neighbor. Uh, and he's he's playing like a totally nice normal guy, and he still freaks me the fuck out. <laughs> he's terrifying. Yeah, he's terrifying. Absolutely. Um, and and in this, he's he's his scariest moments are really his quietest moments in this movie. Like he's got the he's got the moments where he's you know bludgeoning his daughter and where he's you know howling and his face is all painted weird and stuff and um he's got this 
terrifying scene with Laura um, where he's telling her to wash her hands before dinner. And it's just like, it's just absolutely, it's nerve rattling. But then there's the quiet moments of him just kind of sitting there with his hands clasped Mm -hmm. um, or behind the wheel of his car or whatever. And that is to me, 10 times scarier. Well, the Ray wise and repose is terrifying. <laughs> well, the, the scariest line, the most horrifying point of the movie comes at, at the very end and it's the very peak. And it, and it's his line where he's like in the process of, of killing Laura. And he says, uh, uh, damn it. <laughs> I gotta look it up. I always thought you knew it was me. Yeah. He says, I always thought you knew it was me, which, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, and you know, and what I like about this movie too, is that, um, the show, this, you know, the show didn't really have much of a blueprint in terms of where it was going. And I don't think they knew that, you know, uh, Ray Wise's character was the one that killed Laura Palmer in the beginning. Like I said, it wasn't part of the show. They weren't planning on letting that out. But what I like about the movie is that it and, and, you know, a lot of times prequels or whatever, it's really annoying because they go and like go back and explain things that you don't need explaining to. But like this movie really shows um, like what leads to this guy doing this kind of stuff. You know, there's the flashback to him with the prostitutes. Um, and, and, and suddenly he sees his daughter and he's like, whoa, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but you know, that stuff preys upon his mind and it just, you know, it festers and becomes this horrible thing that he does. And it's just, um, yeah, I, I really think that, that it deepens, um, the Leland Palmer character and instead of just being like, Oh, he was overtaken by this evil spirit known as Bob, you know, um, it, it doesn't let, it doesn't let the dad off the hook. Uh, with that stuff. No, I don't. I don't think in in the movie, at least, I don't think there's any implication that he doesn't have you know total agency that he's like not in control. Like yeah, the, the, the 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 Bob figure is not like an actual physical like demon possessing him. It is it is a part of him. Right. Uh, the TV show it's a little different. <laughs> um yeah uh because bob bob ends up moving into another person's body later on but uh uh yes yeah but, um, even, but even then that's like metaphorical it's just like right right you know I, I i hope we don't all have an inner bob but a lot of people do right uh, well bob i mean yes leland palmer you know is responsible for all that stuff but going back to bob bob when I was I was taking a shower today before I watched the movie and I was about to take my dog out for a walk and I was I was getting ready to to go out and do stuff and I just was prepping for the movie and just the idea of Bob made me feel like someone was in the house like I mean it was like really weird um, yeah, so I I you know often get freaked out at night turning out like the lights in my house and I have ever since I'm a kid I was a kid but I was definitely like hoping that Bob was not around the corner. Yeah. So, yeah. So this movie's really good. And now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking my letterbox star rating was a little low. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I've, I've been, I'm trying to be more con, like conservative with things as I write them on, on Letterboxd now, uh, at least like the first initially. So I, I have a lot of four-star ratings, whereas before it would be higher. Uh, I would probably move this one higher. And, you know, we'll see how it sits after another couple of weeks or something. Yeah. Um, and I got to say, going back to the, the Blu-ray release of this is amazing looking and and david lynch has always been a champion for for screening films in the best possible formats um and and he he also he was responsible for the sound design in this movie he actually gets the sound design credit um and it is really 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 good i mean he is such a he is really an artist like it's he's not just a personality like the guy um, really takes his craft seriously and and is a really talented individual. I'm definitely going to watch the series now before the new one starts. So, yeah, yeah. Just be forewarned, James in that mansion, man. It's going to be a tough tough slog. But there's 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 absolutely some wonderful stuff on the show. I think the first season, the first season is only six or seven episodes long. It's 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 fantastic. I think that's the other way around. I think the second episode is only. I don't know. No, no, it's the, the first. Yeah, the first season is short. Second season is long. Lynch left. Lynch left the show in the middle of the second season to, uh, to film Wild at Heart, um, and that's when it all went to hell. But yeah, uh, eight, eight episodes for the first season, twenty-two for the second. Yeah, um, but yeah. Anyway, so we're gonna listen to uh, a, the theme song now because uh, it's it's really really good. Angelo Angelo Badalamente really nailed it. Oh, and Ju- by the way, Julie Cruz singing in this movie in oh, the bar. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, that was that was the uh, best. That was uh, a, a scene from Mulholland Drive. It, That's it right. Very similar. Yep. And also, uh, uh, Eraserhead. Yep. Lady in the Radiator. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> music. song is so good i know it's so good i love it when it kicks in in the movie because he, he totally just goes to the opening credits of the show like he shows the first shot of the tv show yeah, it, it doesn't cooper say like i you know it'll happen again somewhere like yep, and then boom <laughs>
All right. Well, that's it for the inaugural episode of the Francis Farmer Show. I hope everybody's had a good time. Um, looking forward to uh, going forward with this new plan uh, <laughs> because it's basically the old plan and I don't have to change anything about my life whatsoever. So I'm A-OK with that. Um, next time on the show, uh, tying in with the new film from uh, A Picha Pong We're a Sethical, uh, which is Cemetery of Splendor, which we've both seen, right? You saw it. Yes. Yeah, it is, it it's really good. Very good. Yes, uh, I'm actually, uh, I might watch it again. Uh, great, great lead performance in that movie. Um, one of the best of the year, absolutely. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, a previous film of his, Mysterious Object at Noon, which neither of us have seen. And you need to set up the tie-in here, Sean. Uh, uh, again, Mysterious Object at Noon is uh, his feature debut, and it's a like a semi-documentary thing based on the Exquisite Corpse uh, surrealist game, which is like uh, uh, the idea is that one person starts the story, and then the next person picks it up, and it just goes around, and and uh, it can work with like a drawing where you're not seeing, you're only seeing part of what the previous person has drawn, and then you do a continuation, or with a story where you only get like the last line of the previous person's story, and then you continue the story as your own, and so the idea is to create a whole story out of all of these disparate elements. Uh, and apparently that is how this film is structured. Uh, the Exquisite Corpse game was developed by the Surrealists, and among the first participants was a man named Jacques Prévert, who was also a screenwriter. He worked a lot with uh, French director Marcel Carnet, and they made a film in 1946, which is the year we're talking about this year, called uh, Gates of the Night. So we're going to watch that. Sounds like fun. It's their, uh, their follow-up to Children of Paradise and is apparently nowhere near as good. <laughs> so that is something to look forward to. All right. Um, I, for rep this time, it just played here in Seattle. I went and saw it. It was fantastic, as always, the third time I've seen it. But only yesterday, the Isao Takahata film from 1991 that's finally getting a North American release um, is, is playing all over. It's playing all over the, uh, the damn place. But uh, it is coming to Vancouver. It's playing at the Van City Theater starting March 14th. Um, and they will be running both versions, the English language version and the Japanese version, Um Obviously, go see the Japanese language version because it's incredible, and I love that movie. It's the best. Have you watched any of the English language version of the of that one? Yeah. No, I have not. It's uh, it's got Daisy Ridley in it. You you know you know how I feel about Daisy Ridley. Uh, <laughs> I I couldn't I couldn't watch more than like ten minutes of it. It it just seemed it's so it's so weird because they keep all of the the japanese specificity because you'd have to because it's such a specific film to a time and place and right. culture right uh, but everybody's talking speaking in english with an english accent and the 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 disconnect between that was was so distracting and it was so like frustrating to me like it, it just kind of completely was ruining the movie for Ooh. me so i think you know, I mean, I, I'm sure the quality of the voice acting is fine. I mean, Daisy Ridley and Des, Dev Patel speak nicely, but uh, I, I would not watch it if you paid me. Yeah, that doesn't sound so good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the I don't know if you've heard about, have you heard about the Metrograph? 
Metrograph, no. Uh, it is a brand new theater that just opened in New York. Uh, they've got a bookstore attached. They have like a restaurant and a bar. Uh, it's it's basically like a, a, a temple of cinephilia. Like the, the opening programs are just amazing. They do a mix of... Uh, of repertory stuff and uh, and new releases like uh, this is their schedule for tomorrow for example uh, Terrence Davies The Long Day Closes Joe Dante's Matinee and then Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show they have yeah, and then of... My Life to Live right after that well, I'm looking at this right now they have they have a bunch of series coming up uh, they're playing Carol in 35 millimeter which should be amazing. I, don't, I didn't even know there were 35 millimeter prints of it. Uh, but the one I want to highlight is coming up on Saturday, March 19th. They're doing three IB Technicolor uh, prints, Hatari, Singing in the Rain, and Vertigo, all in the same day. And I cannot think of a better way to spend your day than watching those three movies. They are all amazing. Singing in the Rain and Vertigo, obviously. Hatari is one of my favorite Howard Hawks films and... Uh, I actually wrote about it for a book that's coming out. So you'll Plug. definitely want to see that. Yeah. And, uh, this theater, I'm so jealous of this theater. Yeah, this like, place looks amazing. Yeah. Did you see Noah Baumbach's dream double feature? Yeah. He, he's showing Babe Pig in the City and Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're doing a, a, a John Eustache uh, retrospective. This is this is like what everybody thinks a repertory theater should be, and they've got like a, a website attached to it with a bunch of uh, like really cool essays and, and articles, and there's like a, a Molly Haskell essay, a Chai Ming Liang essay, an interview with Frederick Wiseman. This it's I I haven't really explored this website in detail yet because I'm so jealous of it. This is pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. So if you are in New York, you should be there. You should stay in New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is incredible. I mean, I'm just, I mean, every day. I mean, yeah. oh my God. Sean, we need to open a theater. Yeah, uh, the person who opened it is like, a, like a, a fashion designer who hired like really awesome people to program this theater near his, uh, like his retail outlet. It's insane. So, yeah. We should have more money, I guess. Yeah, give us money, people, and, we're, and we'll do even cooler stuff. I don't know how, but we'll do cooler stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely go see this stuff if you can. We would have run Firewalk with me Big Sleep double feature. That would have been pretty cool. That would have been pretty cool. And, so, and we didn't really talk about this on the show, but I think these movies really go well together. They do. Yeah. Women in Trouble. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. And it, it's so different. The the uh, the uh, sister in in the Big Sleep versus the way uh, Laura Palmer is explored. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So you can find out more about us. It's all on uh, SeattleScreenScene.com. Uh, we also are on Twitter at Seattle Screen. We also have a uh, uh, little, 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 what do we have a email yeah. account. Yeah. Email one of those things, uh, SeattleScreen at gmail dot com. Um, one stop shopping now. Mm-hmm. It's all there. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we'll listen to some more music and be back next time. Yeah, this is this is more music by you. <laughs> Plug. <laughs>